shit, shit, shit show. It's a fucking shit show. Shit All right, y'all. Welcome back to Shit Show Saturday. We have Shit Show Trish. Welcome. Nice to be here. It's nice to have you here. What song does Trish want played when she walks into a room? Yeah, you know, it's not even one of my favorite songs, but it's What Is and What Should Never Be by Led Zeppelin. Mm, solid choice. I'm trying to think if anybody else has picked a Zeppelin song. I think that like when the levees break would be a good option. Yeah. I'm a big Joe Walsh, Eagles. Me too. Crosby Hills and Nash fan. But as far as walking into a room, I would have picked Fight the Power by the Isley Brothers, but that would have been my younger self. Okay. So what is your favorite carbohydrate? Oh, I'd have to say chips. What kind? Good corn chips, good potato chips. Well, I really like these Juanita's corn chips these days. I usually used to get them at a deli in Pleasant Hill, just like really made at the deli chips. But up here, that's what I get. And then I really like these potato chips. They're like, I don't know what kind they are. They're from Trader Joe's. They're like, they have ripples in them. And they, they're almost like Hawaiian style potato chips. They're super greasy, super crunchy. Love me some. I think one of my favorite chips is, uh, you know, Miss Vicky's? You ever had those? Mm-hmm. Just a nice, solid crunch, nice kettle chip, barbecue. I like a good kettle chip. I like all the chips, except for Pringles. No, Pringles were yeah. super cool when I was a kid because like, it was in a can. Other than being in a can, do people actually like Pringles? Let me know. I don't think so. I tried to recently. Somebody got me some Pringle-type chips, and I was like, these taste like instant mashed potatoes that someone made hard. Pringles with taste like salt. chips that you would eat in outer space. Yep. <laughs> they're they're outer space potato chips <laughs> yeah okay. okay cheese any good triple cream a good camembert other kinds of triple cream up my alley okay and condiment oh well i use cheese as a condiment a lot but i think that it would probably be salsa what kind of salsa are we like a pico are we like a really spicy what do we like all of the above. I don't think like these really spicy. Yeah, I think that I make myself. Yeah, a good, a, a good, any kind of salsa from a Mexican deli. I like to go to Mexican deli stores and get their things and, you know, smoky salsa, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like like, a, I like like a roasted garlic, like a nice garlic. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that sounds really good. Okay, so how long have you been sober? How long were you in AA? I have not been in AA for a really long time. When I was about 28, I did methamphetamine. And so I had really bad ADD. And so I got off of that. And then when you got off of that, you went to NA, of course. Mm-hmm. And then everybody who went to NA went to AA. And then we identified ourselves as addicts in Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. And then they didn't like that and blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah, blah. So I, I didn't do any drinking or anything the whole time my kids, until they were that into high school. And then I started drinking. You started again, dipping back into bit. meth? No, I'm kidding. No. <laughs> You're like, now I, I just dabble think... in a little meth here and there. A little meth, a little no. meth there. It's not even the same drug anymore. But you know, the thing is, I is I, I, I always say I never want that, that many thoughts going through my mind at the same time ever again. I mean, it was just like, and I wasn't like a big street kind of, I mean, I was 
I had a house. I would get wired on the weekends and clean my house. And then I wouldn't get wired for five or six days. And then Thursday or Friday or whatever, I'd get wired and I'd clean my house again. And I know like that. What I don't understand is what is speed? Is speed meth? Yeah, that's the same thing. So we call it, we call it crank. Crank, yes. Right? So I never liked cocaine, but I loved crank because I have ADD. So of course that it has the opposite effect on me. It slows mm. me down and I'm able to focus. Whereas other people, it speeds them up and does whatever. Plus, I was young. I wanted to be really skinny. And then the people around me were like losing their teeth. And I was super fond of my teeth. And I was like, I don't want this to be my life. So I think I was 28. I, I only did it for two, two, maybe three years. But I had done it when I was really young, too, a little bit. But I, my husband-to-be or my husband that I met, he, he did it. And so, and kind of everybody in our whole group did it. It was kind of a thing, you know, in the eighties. It was like the mid eighties. It was readily accessible. I don't know. It's just like everybody where I lived, that's what they did. And some, I, I've never liked cocaine. Cocaine doesn't do the same thing for my mind that mm -hmm. crank would do. So, and I didn't like my nose running and my, root of my mouth all numb and couldn't talk and. I remember I went to somebody's house once and they were freebasing and it was like this weird thing where they had this like frying pan and they did this stuff with the drug and I didn't understand it, but I sat there and <laughs> it was like everybody in the room was making sure nobody got more than the next person. Mm. And I was like, that's not the kind of partying I did. I mean, we were all like super generous and you know, this, that, and the other. We weren't like, yeah. So it just wasn't my scene. Yeah. You know, I, I remember the first time that I really heard about meth was when I went to rehab when I was 14 and there was a girl who was sent from California and it really hadn't made its way to the East coast yet, like to a extreme degree. So this was 2003. And so, yeah, I just remember that. And the one thing I would just remember is I remember that she shaved her arms and she was like the first person that I met that shaved her arms. So I wonder what happens. Yeah, because I think I think people get overly obsessed with their appearance, and also they think bugs are calling on them. All kinds of stuff happens, right? So, I don't know if you know who David Smith is Dr. David Smith. Mm -hmm. He was, in fact, I raised his son's house recently. He had this thing about the kindling effect. So you would do a drug after a while, and you would get the side effects at a lower dose, but she needed a higher dose to get high. And it's just this whole thing. It kind of gets all turned around or something like that. But like I said, I didn't do it for that many years. And I wasn't like, I didn't lose my house or my job or any, you know, anything about that. But people probably thought I was kind of a little bit off or weird or something sometimes, I'm sure. So when was the first time that you heard the term adult child? Right before I had my son, probably that would be 1987. Oh, wow. This is like, it's like a new term. Somebody had suggested it to me because they said, don't you want to be a good mom? You should go to ACA or- um, Don't you want to be a good Al mom? <laughs> right. Because it was like, Al-Anon was for people who were codependent. And I felt because I actually- did drugs that I was a dependent. And so why would that pertain to me? And so I ended up going to an ACA meeting with a friend of mine and I came home and I got a call that my mother had been given an award for woman of the year in the state of California. And I thought, this is hopeless. No one's ever going to believe. And then I realized that that award was actually something you kind of buy. It's not like really for something that you are. Mm -hmm. It's like that you donate a bunch of money or something. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't, 
like it kind of freaked me out and I just put it on the back burner. And then when I got into NA and AA, it was like, if you scratch an addict long enough, you'll find a codependent, right? So it was like, eventually Al-Anon is going to be in our future, but that's kind of like junior college. And ACA was like grad school. You had to be like, and, and, I, and I, I wish I hadn't got that message. I, actually, if I had gotten ACA before I ever went to any kind of recovery program, I could have saved myself a lot of hurt, you know, because that was the major issue. I've gone to therapy for years and years and years. And actually, it's only since I've joined this group that actually everything is really coming together. It's like all of a sudden... I was scapegoated my whole life. Like I have a friend's mom who said, yeah, I'll never forget finding a case of wine under my son's bed and having to call your mom to say the boys had stolen this wine from her. And my mom walked in the door and said, oh, I've been blaming that on Trish. Mm. And I just thought my mom got too drunk and lost the case of wine and put it, you know, in the garage. And she thought it was wherever, you know, but it was like, I was always being falsely accused of things my whole life. And when you date people in recovery, they're kind of all scapegoats too, because they didn't identify a patient in the family, this, that, and the other. And so being around people that were not, never considered scapegoats was always very intimidating to me. It was like, yeah, my parents never did that. Right. I would be like, I don't know. It just was very intimidating to me. It was much more easy to hang around. Not that we even knew the term scapegoat or not that we even identified with that behavior. We were all just scrambling to try to make up for what we thought we had done to other people. It never occurred to us that anything had been done to us. That's powerful. Would you say that you had an ACA bottom? Oh, yeah. I had like decades. A million. Yeah. But what's the most significant? So I had this boyfriend that really, really liked me. And it was like, you know, the second week he goes, it's our second week anniversary. And I thought he was kidding me. And then the next week he sat on the couch, it's third week anniversary. And then I'm like, he go, I know you don't like me as much as you, as I like you, but you'll catch up and you're super needy and all this stuff. And I'm like, I do really do like you. I mean, you're cute. You're fun. It's all this other stuff. I Can really you just stop like saying you. that? Can you just, I would like you a yes. whole lot more if you'd stop pointing out that it's our one week anniversary. <laughs> Absolutely. And so what ended up happening was, is I ended up breaking up with them. And then a year later, I was with a friend on Skinsa Beach. We were in this beautiful house on Skinsa Beach. And I looked out the window and I saw someone I thought it looked like him. And mm. I thought, oh, I believe that guy. I wish he wouldn't have been <laughs> like that. Monday, I went into him randomly on the street. I'm appraising real estate. He's doing his job. And we got back together for about a week or two. And basically, I figured, because I wasn't like scared to kiss him, you know, like when you first start dating someone new, I wasn't any of those things. So it was really easy to get comfortable really fast. And I realized this is not a person who wants somebody who likes them. This is a person who only is attracted to people they don't think like them. Mm. So the minute I was like fully in, hey, I know your deal, you know, this, that, and the other. Of course, he a ghost ditches, whatever hit me. And I am beside myself. I mean, like the tail of she Ryan's beside myself. I mean, I just can't believe that. And and so that's when I ended up thinking 
do I have to go to SLAA? Do I have love addiction? What is wrong with me? Because I've never been very sexually promiscuous, none of that stuff, right? So I'm thinking, and so I'd already kind of started to go into some AA meetings at a fellowship reopened in El Cerrito, right? And so I ended up doing that. And then I ended up going to that little treatment program. And then I got a good foundation of how I could kind of move in the world. And sometimes these CA meetings are a little sad for me because there's a lot of people that don't have a lot of friends and don't know how to make friends mm -hmm. and feel really lonely and don't know how to kind of get out of that. And because I went to that inpatient program, it really taught me how to make friends. So while I was really always good at getting resources and I always had a fair amount of friends, not that I'm big with popularity or anything. Like I, I pretty much a homebody, I stay home, but I have a good solid, good five friends kind of at all time. But I moved to a new area and when I moved to a new area, even, so, even though some things came up, it was really easy to kind of navigate that because of that little in treatment program that I was in. Uh-huh. So is that where things kind of became into picture for you and you were like, holy shit. Cause you talked about, you know, not fitting in, feeling like you don't mix with people who weren't scapegoats, but not really realizing that you were scapegoated. Like when has it been a slow unveiling of realizing how much your childhood screwed you up? Or was there like a significant moment? Like, oh shit, <laughs> this was fucked up. <laughs> oh no, I've always known. So when I was about ninth grade, my well, when I was in junior high, my best friend's dad was head of the FBI. He was super famous. And my mom was kind of always impressed by super famous things. And to me, it was just Julie's dad. And she came to visit me one day. And no matter what Julie did, she got me in a really bad car accident. I was in the hospital. No matter what Julie did, Julie was a saint as far as my mom was concerned. And Julie came to visit me. She's a big pot smoker. I'm not a big pot smoker, but we went to the park and smoked a joint and came back to the house. And I was so paranoid that someone would notice that I was high on marijuana. Plus, marijuana makes me feel really strange and paranoid anyways. That I really didn't notice anything that was going on. And then Julie and I went upstairs to my bedroom. And she said, Trisha, your mom is shit-faced drunk. And I was like, what? So when we got to go to the park, my mom had just come home from work. So we were gone like 25 minutes. In that 25 minutes, my mom, and I'm like, drunk? What is drunk? What would that even be? And because I come from an Irish Catholic family, everybody drinks heavily, but people really don't get inebriated. And they drink a lot, but they drink slowly over long periods of time. So the next night, I counted how many drinks she had, and she had 15 tumblers full of gin straight out of the freezer. And I was like, oh, my God, that's what's wrong. That's why she's such a bitch all day. And then she's nice for an hour or two in the evening, maybe an hour and a half. And then she's just, you know, slushy. But I didn't even know what that was. And then really lecturing and flooding me with information and, you know, holding me hostage for these drunken conversations and stuff like that. But she threw me out when I was in 10th grade. That's so interesting that your friend would be able to pick up on that. Do you think it was by the way that she was acting or she could smell it? Like, it's interesting that you weren't able to pick up that that was her behavior was alcohol related. No, I never, I lived that way my whole life and I never, ever noticed it. I never, ever, I, I was always just trying to stay out of a line of fire that I was always so worried about my own behavior and what I was doing wrong and what I was doing to trigger her because I've always been told it's all my fault, right? 
And so the whole thing is, is, you know, it never occurred to me that there was something wrong with her, except for that she was mad all the time and she was very spacey. So she'd be spacey in her own thoughts. And if you were to say, mom, 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 she'd get mad at you for interrupting her spaciness. That was during the day. And then at night, like I say, she'd want to engage for that first euphoria of getting drunk. Mm-hmm. And then she'd go, you're a despicable, horrible person. You understand me? Stuff like you could put on $30 worth of clothes and make them look like 300 and you're beautiful and you're intelligent, but none of it matters because you're never going to amount to anything because you're a loser. Just horrible, you know, and you'd think everything was fine. The other thing was, was when she'd be okay for a while, you'd think everything was fine. And then out of left field would come these just... Tiffany shared about that in today's episode of with her mom about like thinking that things were good. And and then, yeah, just out of nowhere having that happen. A couple thoughts. One, like the words that she's saying to you, that's obviously how she feels about herself, right? Like you'll never amount to anything. That's clearly how deep down inside she has that massive amount of shame. I think you not realizing that it was alcohol or that she was the problem is this beautiful example of how it's way too fucking scary for a kid to think that their parent is the problem. You know, like that's way, that was way too scary for you as a kid to think that it had anything to do with your mom. So you made it about you and that like, you were just so bold. That was so ingrained in you that you didn't even see it was at the alcoholism until your friend pointed it out to you. Yeah. Well, I had grandmothers that I visited. And Mm -hmm. so I knew what peaceful nurturing women were like, and especially my dad's mom. So my mom hated my dad's mom, probably because she felt guilty for what? She, what is the deal there? I, like, are your parents divorced? What's the deal with I that? I think my mother tricked my dad into marrying her by saying she was pregnant, but I was born like 10 months after my parents got married. Got so it. I'm old. And so I think, and my grandmother never had anything against my mom. My grandma was always nice to my mom that I could see, but my mom was always saying negative things about my grandmother. And then she'd say things like, and you, you think she's so great. So my mom started emotionally abusing me. My, she told my sister once, you know, I didn't like my mother-in-law. I took it out on Trisha. And my sister said, well, Trisha was just a little girl. And she goes, Trisha was a very little girl. I was probably four, three or four. But she was mad at me because I didn't hate my grandma like she did. But my grandma was really nice to me. And so when did your parents' marriage end? When I was 14, I think it was well, my dad stopped talking to my mom for a year before that. And he had a sailboat. My, dad, my mom didn't sail very much. And yeah, he just, he's just sick of her. I don't think he ever really, really loved her very much. I mean, they had some good times or whatever, but there was always the impression that she loved him a lot more than he loved her. And yeah, she started selling real estate. She started doing really well. She had a little bit more monetary power in the family. Um, They went on some nice vacations and stuff like that. But like I said, he stopped talking to her. He sat in a chair every night. He didn't say a word to her for a year. And it was really tense. And then right around Christmas vacation, they sat us down. And interestingly enough, when they sat us down to say, I have a, a brother a year younger than me and a sister four years younger than me. When they sat us all down, and said, your dad's moving out. I started crying and they said, you know, what, it's okay, it's gonna be okay. And I go, no, it's not, because you guys are gonna make this my fault. That was my reaction was, I wasn't, mm. I didn't care if they broke up, I didn't care about any of that. I was just like, somehow 
this is going to get turned around and I'm going to get blamed for this. And they were like, no, you're not. This is our marriage. This is something I go, I just know you're going to, somebody's going to blame you for it. And I, so I had been a scapegoat for so long that it was just, and I don't know that I ever did get blamed for that. But I remember that was my initial reaction that I was scared. I was going to get blamed for one thing you get blamed for stealing wine you steal that you knew your mom was too, just too drunk and forgot about it. Another thing was going to be if you're going to blame me for the breakup of a marriage, that was like, but I don't think that ever. <laughs> what was your relationship like with your dad? My dad and I were pretty close. He was always trying to take us places like Golden Gate Park and have these outings. When my mom started selling real estate, and wasn't around on the weekends. I could talk to him. He would stay up at night and he would, I, in fact, I saw it at the store yesterday, this aged Gouda and Thickland Port. And he would sit on the back porch of this house we had in Belmont that overlooked this canyon. He'd just be out there in the dark by himself. And I'd go out there and talk to him. And then after he left my mom, he moved to Tahoe. Well, he moved to, where did he move to? He moved to my grandparents. Oh, he moved to uh, El Cerrito up in the hills. A beautiful live bridge view. Not great house, but great view. And then he ended up moving to Tahoe. We go and see him in Tahoe and stuff like that. And then I kind of had a resurgence of a resentment about him when I got married and started having kids. Because I said, you know, what if my husband decides at 34 that he just doesn't want to be a husband and father anymore and leaves me? And he goes, and he, my dad's pretty stern in his boundaries. And he was just like, hey, I'm not going to take that kind of language from mm. you. But it kind of was the way it was. I was 14. That means Michael was 13. Liz was 10. He did kind of just fail. What roles did your brother and sister play in the family? My brother was a golden child to my mom. He was born with a couple little health issues and she just really clinged on to him and everything about him. And then my sister's the clown. And I have found that in my experience that most scapegoats that I know are the oldest children. Mm. Like the first pancake, the one that they kind of worked out what they were going to do on and, you know, how they were going to be parents. But yeah, so my sister was the clown, um, very crude. And my dad, my parents were always trying to kind of put a kibosh to that, but very overly sensitive, sick all the time, cried easy, that kind of stuff. My brother was more quiet, very self-centered, and developed alcoholism very early. Like he was probably 15. By 17, he was drinking a 12-pack a night in his bedroom. Mm -hmm. Similar to me. What was your relationship like with the two of them growing up? My brother? And your sister. My sister and I, up until recently, have been yeah. always very, very, very close. Mm -hmm. And my brother and I were close until my brother married some, my brother was a, a sailboat racer and he married this girl that he didn't really want to get married to. And when he was realizing that he wanted to, he was like an athlete, he wanted to sail and go around the world sailing. And that's what he was doing. And she wanted him to dig ditches somewhere and bring in a paycheck and on the way out of the marriage, my sister-in-law accused my brother of molesting their daughter. And my brother had to go to the police and the courts. And, and I, I guess it, it just went to the police stage. And they said, you know, if you'll sign a paper saying you did this, we'll give you some counseling and this, that. And my brother told him to pound sand. We're Irish. I mean, we're verbally abusive and we have alcoholic, but we don't touch each other in my family. There's none of that. So my sister-in-law told my brother that I was the one who called the police and told my brother, said my brother molested his daughter. And I didn't know for a year and a half until afterwards, I saw my brother somewhere and I'm like, why is Michael mad at me? And somebody goes, oh, 
Michael thinks you're the one who called the police mm. and said this. And I go, not only did I not know about it, not only did I ever think it. So for about 30 years, my brother and I didn't have a relationship wow. until the last five years of his life. And That's then we were real close. Wow. And he died in May. Yeah, I know. And you shared about that. And, you know, you've shared recently some about your relationship with your sister and how that's kind of imploded. I'm wondering how much of that do you think is influence factored in by you having more of an understanding of what's going on? Are you diving in more to your, you know, adult child recovery, seeing things more clearly, understanding more deeply how you're scapegoated? Like, how much of it do you think it was you accepting unacceptable behavior for a very long time and getting to a place where you're no longer fawning to her? Yeah. I never, I never stopped. Yeah. It's her, her disease and her stuff had progressed to the point where it got to the point where she's just screaming and ranting and raving. And in the last scene was so bad that no, she, I could never discuss anything about recovery, ACA, not, not a word comes out of my lips. No, it, I didn't mean to absolutely. her. I just, no, I mean, you're, I just mean like your understanding and you kind of changing the way that you're interacting in the relationship as you're getting help. I didn't, I didn't, I mm. could, there was no room to change the way I was reacting in the relationship. Mm. It was either put up with this stuff or like her favorite expression is, that's just shit you made up in your head, Trish. If I have a recollection of something, just really, she's just very irritable, very prickly. She's devastated that my brother died. They were in a very codependent relationship, and my brother and I were not in a codependent relationship. In fact, when I met with the psychic, I thought, we didn't know if he was dead for a short period of time because he had drowned, right? And so I met with the psychic, and she goes, yeah, and he, he's come in, and he said, and I don't worry that we didn't have a codependent relationship. I got that. Like he wanted to park a car that didn't run on my property. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not having not running cars on my property. And not that he had a bunch of that stuff going on, but he had just asked for that favor. And I was really able to say no to him and stuff like that. So I think that my sister took over abuse when my mom died. Which was when? Probably 10 years ago. I don't even know. I don't keep track. You know, I don't really care. It was the happiest day of my life. When my, mom, my mom's funeral was one of the happiest days of my life. I felt so like I could just move freely about the world. There was nothing coming at me from behind. I, there was nothing I had to be hyper vigilant about, or and I didn't even have the word hyper vigilant. But it was not going to be another family function. I was going to find out that I wasn't allowed to come to or anything like that. Like I wasn't allowed to come to Christmas or anything like that because she perpetuated the lie that I had turned my brother in for child abuse mm. and said I couldn't be there because Michael would be there. But Michael told me a couple of years before he died that he did not believe that anymore. And he did not know my mom was doing that to me wow. in his name. Wow. Yeah. I guess my question with your sister, I guess, was more so was it all, and I think you just kind of answered that, that things shifted when your mom started a few years before she died. I'm just wondering, like, was it always an unhealthy, toxic relationship or is it something that developed more so, you say, in the past? 10 no, years? so we were best. My mom always wanted to pit her children against each other in very insidious ways. And she always wanted to break up me and Liz, but she could never break up Liz, Liz and I. We were, we were bonded. So my sister called me to tell me she was getting married. She was 40-ish. And I ever, all of her friends had gotten married. She was very resentful, but she didn't have a partner. Blah, blah, blah. She's getting married. And she said, and if dad's not going to give a certain amount of money towards the to wedding, he can't walk me down the aisle. And I went, 
Liz, did you understand that you're 40 and you always want to get married? And the second sentence in telling me that you become engaged, you're talking about, you know, so my mom controlled the whole wedding and part of controlling the whole wedding was I was not allowed to be in the wedding party because my emotions were too erratic or uncontrollable or easy to see or something like that. And I was like, wow, my sister said this to me. And she was like, yeah, because you can't. And I'm like, that's how my sister is. That's kind of not how I am. But my mom, so my mom was one of these people that, like when Patty Hearst got kidnapped and robbed the bank, I would never, nobody could ever force me to do what I'm the most moral, da 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 da. After my dad left, she ended up having an affair for 30 years with her boss, mm. right? And I didn't even know anything about it. I was bartending at a bar in Woodside and some realtors came up because they hated my mom because she wasn't a well-liked person and told me this. And that affair had probably been going on 20 years when these realtors told me this. And so I didn't even, it wasn't even on my radar. I just wouldn't even, you know. And so the thing was, was my mom knew that I had nothing to do with this guy that she was having an affair with because I've never liked him ever since I was a little girl because she'd been his, my, her boss, you know, her boss since she, I was a little girl. And I just think that she was so embarrassed and shamed about what she was like. And she knew that I was the one who listened to all those morality, integrity things that she was not following that. That I, I think she just always knew that I saw light through her. Mm. She wanted to be the belle of the wedding and supposedly she was paying for it. And at the end of it, she drove my sister crazy and didn't pay for the wedding. I can really relate to that. I think there's a lot of similarities between your mom and my dad. Yeah. Wanting to be portrayed in a certain light. Like you talking about getting that like award of the year. Like it's like my dad like gives half of his money to charity, but like he lets you know that he does that. And he knows that I'm like his entire life. He's never really been challenged by anyone. And he knows that I see him for exactly who he is, you know, and that scares me. But you know what? In a lot of ways, in a loving way. I mean, it's just you kind of go, oh, that's so sad. It is sad. I know. And you just kind of go, oh, that's so sad. It's not like, oh, you're this terrible person. It's, oh man, I wouldn't want to feel like that. Or I wouldn't want people to think like that of me. Or I wouldn't want to be that transparent and that phony or grandiose or whatever. But it wasn't like I was coming. Most of my problem was when the morality would shift because I had this impression that had been ingrained in me that this person is a certain way. And when you question them and go, wait a minute, is it okay to cheat on your taxes in this way? Or is it okay to, I mean, I'm not saying that's even a, but you're like, you're just questioning for clarification. And that questioning for clarification, it brings to light the lack of integrity in the situation. It's a mirror. And you don't even mean to. You're just trying to say, hey, are you sure they didn't give you too much change? <laughs> you know? And it's not like, you're thinking that they're on the same page you are because you've been listening to their pontification of the way integrity and morality and what kind of person you're supposed to be. And then you're realizing, oh, well, I'm sure you're like that too. I mean, it took me a really long time when I was young to not, it took me a very long time to realize that when an adult looks you in the face and tells you something, it, it could be a lie. I believe people all the time. I didn't have big trust issues. I still don't have big trust issues. So talk about what the last few months have been since joining the community. Things are like putting, fitting together for the first time. Like, what are you realizing? What has healing looked like? What has this experience been like for you as far as your personal growth? Well, I say I'm a skimmer because 
I skim over material and then I go back and do a deep dive on things. But like, I've always been going to recovery meetings in one shape or form. Like I said, like, you know, 30 some odd years. And people that I would say, oh, I'm so intimidated by your program. I'm so intimidated by what you say. And I'm like, what is intimidating? I mean, I'm telling yourself we're doing the stupidest ass things. And I think what it was, was at least in the beginning, I'm not intimidated very easily by in any situation. I'm just not like I have a ninth grade education. I made mean, great business for myself or place have worked really hard. You know, like these kids two kind of codependence, the kind of false power, the kind that mm-hmm. acquiesce to everything. One up or one down. Right. And there's two kinds of people that have been traumatized. You either don't do well or you do really well, you know? And so I'm in the latter group. And so, or relatively well. And so when I first got in the group, I was a little intimidated because all of these women, they had, they're, they're so articulate. And the things that they're bringing up and talking about are things that were never, and it was kind of rapid fire too, because it was like one incredible share, one incredible person after the next sharing just these different scenarios. And even though my scenario, or I may not have experienced anything like that, it's the feelings underneath that, that I was, it was so relatable. And, um, I really never, ever was able to understand the scapegoat concept until I was in this group. I got to the bottom of the fact that I have two inner children. One is five and one is eight. And they both, they kind of present themselves in a little bit different ways, very different ways, kind of. I came up when people were getting in this inner child stuff in the eighties and like somebody would be running like a convention, like some like respected guy in recovery. He's walking around with a stuffed cat that he's petting while he's talking to you and you have to pretend that he's not holding his stuffed cat. So it took me a long time to figure out how... Mm-hmm. get that inner child and inner teen piece. And of course, I identify with the inner teen very early on. That's easy. My inner teen is super easy to see. Um, so it's pretty much like that. And every time I get off a meeting, I don't like to do meetings at night. I don't like to do anything at 530 at night. I like to do everything in the morning. So sometimes I forget the meetings and I have alarms for my phone and stuff like that. But the bottom line is every time I um, get off of a meeting, I feel happier, you know? Well... I was saying something in a meeting about why do people who do this shit expect you to come right back in without ever an apology or acknowledgement and you just got to come back for more. It was like the beginning of my scapegoat thing of realizing and the person who was facilitating the meeting said, oh, kind of like the housewives of Orange County, you expect an apology before you'll be friends again. And that wasn't at all what I said. Mm -hmm. That is not all what I meant. I just went. I just don't know how to navigate this stuff. It was probably right around the time of the big falling out. I don't know how to navigate this anymore. I'm in trouble Mm -hmm. constantly. There's nothing I can do that makes this person happy. My presence on the earth absolutely annoys the shit out of my sister. I mean, every word that comes out of my mouth, everything, but she doesn't want to be left alone. I'm alone. I'm alone. I'm being left alone. And I'm like, going, okay, well, I don't know what else you want me to do. I call you every day. You don't want to talk about the things, you know, she goes, I just don't like anything you talk about. I'm like, what? She goes like recipes, gardening, your friends, this, that, and the other, but she never (laughs) stayed recovered because I never, and I'm like, okay, what do you want me to talk about then? TV shows, your big, your new big idea of the day. Anyways, it just kind of all came at the same time where it was like, okay, I can stop trying to be the big Mm. sister to my little sister. It's always been kind of weak in a certain way. She's become so big and abrasive and everything. And so maybe that wasn't taking up so much of my time. It's trying to build that, you know, Mm -hmm. and 
I just listened to a lot of the shows and I listened to a lot of the shit shows Saturdays when I was in Mexico, like by the pool, because they were kind of like being soap operas. Oh, and this is this person's story and stuff like that. And then the level of recovery in this format is infinitely more sophisticated than anything that I've ever hmm. been in, in any kind of recovery setting. And I also like the fact that it's a meeting without a bunch of readings. I love the fact that at the very beginning of the meeting, you say, does anyone need to speak? And my second meeting, I was going to have to put my dog to sleep the next morning. And I so wanted to say, I need to speak. But I thought if I started, I would never stop crying. And but the fact that that option was open for me, if I had wanted to take it, I just thought it was really loving. Is there someone bursting at the scenes that really needs to get something off their chest? Is the way I kind of saw it. I, this is an hour long of some really deep and meaningful, like I have a really hard time not doing something else when I'm in a meeting and I never do that with mm. shit show meetings. I'm always like riveted to what little morsel, you know, I can get out of listening to the other people share about what's unfolding for them. You know, it's interesting you make the comment about it being like more sophisticated. And what I think it is, I think it's a level of vulnerability and authenticity. You know what I mean? Like it is just, people are really fucking real. Like you go, I mean, you've been in 12 step programs for forever. I have too. There's a lot of fucking bullshit. And there's a lot of people trying to portray themselves in a certain light. And I feel like people really just show up as who they really are. Like a hundred percent. Well, the other thing as a comment was made the other day where somebody said that they don't really um, mind sharing in regular meetings, but they're intimidated sharing in these meetings. And you know, what I got from that was because when we were vulnerable in our families, we got, you know, something happened, right? But when we go to meetings, we can keep an arm's length distance from most people. And so getting vulnerable like that, of course, why wouldn't people want to get vulnerable? Because the last time you got really vulnerable, it was not a good experience. And it's the repercussions of it have lasted for decades now, right? And so that is the reason, absolutely the reason why it's more sophisticated, because there's absolutely no game playing, no one-upping, no grandstanding going on at all. But I may have come into the group at a, a time where that's either been rooted out or it's never happened or the person, you know, those people usually kind of go away after a while when they're not well received. So what has this process been like? How has this impacted your relationship with your husband and your kids? Well... I think I'm a happier person to be around. My husband and I don't fight very much anyways. We've only been married a few years. So the first couple of years was a lot of living with somebody. He's a widower. He was married for like 23 years or to, to, to somebody and she died. And I had been pretty much single most of my adult life with dating and stuff. But that's how I was a runaway bride. I was always engaged. But with my kids, I don't have that much of a quandary. I have a couple of things that I need to address with my kids. One of them is that my older son, you know, makes fun of me and doesn't respect my recollection of things and doesn't respect and he kind of goes, oh, mom, you know, you're just whatever. And I'm noticing that is an extension of the scapegoating mm. process and really looking at how my husband's daughter and daughter-in-law scapegoated me really bad at the beginning of the relationship, which sent me into a tailspin and sent me into all this therapy and stuff. And now I realize if I had done this, I would have recognized 
why it was triggering me so bad, but I didn't really understand pretty much never really even the word scapegoat never stuck with me mm. at all until I got here and kind of hearing some other things and stuff. So I would have handled those situations with a lot less drama. My husband has had to deal with a lot of flooding and me just going crazy. And are you kidding? These fucking people I'm going to like. And now I just kind of sit back and I, you know, a generous to a certain extent and keep my distance. And I read in Ann Lander's book, if you marry a guy whose kids are not receptive to you, just let him go visit them and don't deal with it. Okay. Three things that you like about yourself. Mm. I have a really big, really big forgiving heart and I'm very generous of time, talents, and treasures and I'm funny. You are. I agree. Good wife and funny. Mm. Hope or dream for the future. Hope or dream for the future. Oh, I just hope my husband stays alive for as long as he possibly can. Mm. I just have so much fun with him because he's 68 and I'm 62. And so we're both really healthy and really active and everything. And I'm just having the best time of my life. I'm like married to my best friend. You know, he's just so much fun. And he he cracks me up, even though he annoys me sometimes just to no end. But for the most part, like I was saying to him yesterday. So it's just my hope and dreams for the future is that we can stay healthy for a really long time and just enjoy our family and enjoy our friends enjoy where we live. We worked really hard to get to where we are. And I think we have a really nice life and I want to keep it as long as I possibly can. That's awesome. It gives me a lot of hope for the future too. <laughs> well, I'm so honored and grateful that you have found me in this ship and you're um, a huge value add to the community. So I'm so, so glad to have you here. Well, I am super glad to have you and I'm super glad that even though I know it's really rough sometimes putting something like this together. And then when there's a spiritual component, there's always going to be tremendous opposition, mm. you know, that you just, and just watching you and everybody else rock right through it. And it feels like it's very solid. I'd be devastated if I ever went away. Me too. You know, that's what I say. Don't oh, yeah. leave me. I'll fucking don't abandon me, everybody. No, nobody's they're not going to. You know? I know they're not. They're not going Let it